Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. My guest today is Dr. Danny Buck. And this week we're doing our very first Halloween special where we're going to talk about, of course, witches and i want to know how cool is it to say that i study witches and witchcraft for a living it's certainly different it leads to some very interesting questions from people you know i'm used to looking at stuart history but you get a really different kind of people that engage with the history of magic one of my memories of this is giving a talk at a local church in norwich and getting a group of researchers from NPIG, the Norwich Paranormal Investigation Group, wanting to find out more about the ghostly history of the city. So you certainly get that element of the paranormal, which when I started off, I was a very sensible political historian as an undergraduate, looking at religious and political divisions. But magic leavens that. It gives a dark power and an intensity to that political conflict that can seem very alien to our modern sensibilities, but brings this period to life in a way that I don't think anything else does. Mm. And what what is most people's reaction when you say that I study wishes and witchcrafts? Ooh, well, um, certainly interest. You know, always that question, do you believe they were real or not? Mm. It's Which... kind of an exotic topic, though, isn't it? Mm. It certainly is. But that is something I think that historians engaging with more and more. Uh, again, when I started, you you know, you look to someone like Malcolm Gaskill, Marion Gibson. But I was recently at the uh, Witchfest, the mm. History of Witchcraft conference being held at York. And we had, I think, something like uh, 15, 20 speakers and a much larger audience engaging with witchcraft and its historical context in so many ways. So from a legal perspective, from a religious perspective, from a literary perspective. It was fascinating that how much the study of witchcraft has blossomed as a way into uh, history. Mm. And I want to begin, because giving us a brief history from antiquity until we are going to mainly focus on the medieval era. And you are in Norwich, which we are sure going to touch on. That is kind of notorious for witchcraft and witch hunts. But let's begin with antiquity and how they viewed witchcraft and witches and then until where we are going to begin. So magic has always been a part of human culture. We think about early religious ideas, the idea of shamans and people connect to nature. But the idea of harmful magic is something that's always entwined with that. You know, if you've got the power to heal, you also have the power to hurt. Classical Greece, again, is famous for the figure of Medea a magical user who has the power to corrupt leaders, has the power to bring people back to life, but use it to harm and corrupt the society around her. 
Similarly, the image of the goddess, the crone goddess of magic, Circe, is one that looms large. But the figure of the magical user doesn't have quite the intensity that we think of now. Often, again, it's a largely positive figure. Um, you know, think of the oracles of ancient Greece and Rome. Um, just think of, again, the ambiguous figure of the Norse god Odin, who gave up his eye to cast sorcery to understand the runes. But the, again, there's still a tradition within the Bible, which is one that is drawn upon by the witch finders. Thou shalt not suffer the witch to live. Again, that, that tension of magical users as people who usurp God's power, who threaten it. But there's not quite that same fear. Instead, you have non-human figures, the succubi, the incubi, who prey on humans uh, at night. So the demonic is there, but it's threatened its human allies aren't understood in quite that way. The druids are a kind of which falls into this category, mm. wouldn't you say? Again, they have role the magic user, the healer, the person who can use the power of gods. And again, as, as the Christian uh, doctrine becomes more prevalent, then some of these old gods, these pagan right. gods, are understood as demons. That link being made uh, between them and, and the priests and those who use magic. But at the same time, medieval Christianity is one that is infused with a positive magic. So the rituals of healing via saints, uh, the miracles that might attend going to a shrine, they are magical even if it is a divine magic. Mm. And the, the, I read that, you know, with the part about this, I read Ronald Hutton's book mm. a while ago to prepare for this episode, and he made an excellent point when he says that Christianity, as we spoke about, it existed for quite a while before the famous witch hunts that we know of in the Middle, middle Ages, about four, 400 years ago, about 400 years before the which hunts began. So why first in the mid middle mid, middle ages did it first begin to hunt witches? And why not before when Christianity began? Because as as I mentioned, it's been quite around for quite a while already. So what what changed? This again is the vexed issue and one that obviously we love to discuss. My feeling, and I think I I'm reading, you know, a lot of uh what was around it, is that it's about the confessionalization of Christianity with increasing numbers of heresies. So the Proto-Reformation, so people like the Hussites in Bohemia. If you have an idea that you are making a contract with God, you're making an agreement with him to be, again, almost going back to the Jewish idea of the covenant uh, that is made originally in Israel, then that allows you to therefore make a covenant with the devil. The two are balanced in some ways. They're mirrors, dark mirrors of each other. And so with that idea of a godly pact that separates you out as a genuine believer, it allows, therefore, the witch to be the inverse of that. Instead of signing allegiance to God, that you're going to walk with him and follow a confession that makes a greater commitment to God, you can make a commitment to the devil and be his agent in the world. It's no surprise that the first great work that we know of that defines the witch in this terms, the Malleus Malficiarum, is one created by uh, a couple of inquisitors, people looking for evidence of heretical beliefs, of people breaking away from Catholicism and forming these separate communities. 
again, it's an ongoing theme about witchcraft is how it is used either as a way of expressing fears about sectarian religious beliefs in Christianity, or that's seen as a different form of this sectarianism. Hmm. So let's talk about the, what defines a witch. And well, it was mostly because it was mostly women, of course. Mm. But it's as you know. But what would they medieval people define a witch? So again, from the high medieval and into the early modern period, we start getting this idea, this core idea of the demonic pact, that you have made an agreement with the devil, you've given up your allegiance to God, you've given up your baptism, you've sold your soul or given up your soul to the devil and working therefore as part of his party to undermine your community and the wider Christian, Christian community. There are other signs of this pact, and it differs between different nations. It differs even in the gender gap, depending on the area you're in. I think if we think of Russia, there's a belief that 90% of those uh, accused of witchcraft are male. Similarly, in Normandy, it's of the same split. But again, throughout the rest of Europe, there tends to be the opposite. So 90% women accused, 10% men. Well, women call sorry, where men call witches as well, or where they call as we as we call them today, wizards, or what? Where are different names for these things? Where are they just called witch, witches as well to be put in one genre? Yeah, witches tend to be those uh, relatively uh, low status people using harmful magic. So again, it's the idea of malvicic magic, harmful magic. Because often, again, we see that confused with mm. people engaged in magical healing. So often what you know we've heard today is white magic. Again, depending on how strict you are, you might define that also as a way against God. But again, we see it in cases in England with the Pendle witch cases that people who are engaging in white magic and healing see themselves as drawing upon uh, godly power. They're not very different from um, both the magical healing of uh, high Roman Catholic medieval traditions. And again, very similar to magical healers who are ministers from nonconformist groups. So the witch instead is again, someone engaging in malefic practice. So again, in England, you tend to use witch for both. Um, so as it says there, vocat anglia witchcraft. So this is called in English witchcraft in legal documents. So again, that's how ordinary people understanding it. Mm. I want to bring up one of perhaps one of the most famous wizards of all time, which is arguably, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, Merlin. It's interesting how he is kind of, I wouldn't say worship, but how he is this great hero of literature. Mm. But then when you come to real, quote unquote, real witchcraft, they are seen as evil. And it's kind of a little bit hypocrisy there, I feel like, because Merlin is kind of, a good, a good wizard, and the rest is kind of when you come to real witches, it's kind of the evil devil worship. There is something very interesting to Merlin in particular in his mythology, because in some versions of the Welsh myth, he's an antichrist. He's literally born of Satan, mm. his child, who then turns against him. Um, certainly, again, he's an interesting figure. Uh, again, if you ever speak to Dr. Francis Young. He's very interested in about this line of academic magic often pursued by men and how it had a lot more acceptability. 
Again, these are often very thin, fragile lines between acceptable magic and unacceptable magic. So the thin, well, again, one of the most famous um, wizards or people giving up their soul is a very educated man of Dr. Faustus, that myth. So in Faustus, he's almost too educated and he's bored and he lets Satan uh, play with him in part because he just wants to know more. And there's a kind of foolishness according to the devil there, which is contrasted with the witch who is actively seeking to join the devil for to indulge some element of their character. Mm. If it's for revenge or if it's bitterness at their neighbours, instead of this intellectual pursuit. I mean, fascinating is, as a, in the same line, is the role of people like astrologers and wise folk in general, who, uh, again, if they might cross a line, if they're, they're seen as healers, if they fail to heal, if they uh, live in a time of particular panic, they might be brought into the class of which that they're using hostile, negative magic. But quite often, they're seen as acceptable or on the fringes. Uh, Dr. Tabitha Stanmore, who again helped host Witchfest, is doing excellent work about the way that these people exist on the fringes of society. But again, they are open about it. There's sort of an honesty there. While the witch is something secretive, harmful, like a cancer within society, trying to undermine it. Mm. Let's talk about the, the witch hunt. And I, I want to bring up just the time. I want to bring up the scene in in Monty Python where they where they do find supposedly a witch, and uh, she gave me a newt. That the infamous <laughs> scene. That, that how accurately is that when they portray that they find a witch and they the, they just make up non nonsense reasons like you do in the Holy Braille, where where she she gave me a, oh she. You know, all these nonsense reasons, knew it is one of them, but how accurately is that seen? Basically not that accurate. So there's some bits which are quite interesting, like the floating of the witch, and we can get mm. back to that. And so the torture methods used to uh, pursue witches. But the big thing is that generally witchcraft accusations don't succeed. Uh, based on the work of James Sharp, he's looked at the Essex as an example, only one in 10 accusations succeed. Therefore, taking making an accusation is quite risky. For a start, you believe this person has demonic power and can harm you. If they know that you're pursuing them, there's a risk of them doing even more harm. So that real danger, if, if, you know, if there's something you genuinely believe, it is something very risky. It's not something you just pursue on a whim. It's quite interesting, actually, uh, Jane Sharp also written a very interesting book called The Bewitching of Anne Gunter, which deals with an ongoing feud in a family, between families in a small village, whereby uh, uh, a Mr. Gunter gets involved in a fracas in a football game, stabs someone, they die, and he's seen as a bit of a pariah in that community. And then he basically gets his daughter to fake a witchcraft accusation. Um, you know, there's evidence of things like weird things that witches do to you basically got pamphlets of previous accusations mm -hmm. and uses them as a way to um that sounds like a clickbait headline you would get see on reddit or something today or, or kind of that kind of news like where this is where the top 10 things switches can do to you exactly so in this case it's sicking up pins so you mentioned she's got to hide like tiny pins in her mouth and then vomit them forth as evidence of her bewitchment and using that as a way to accuse a neighbor and some of the expected rituals of that. 
uh, things like burning the thatch off the roof to try and cause them pain and harm. But these are things that can last for generations. You know, families are suspected, uh, their children are suspected with the Pendle witch trials that goes down several generations. So it's not something that's embarked upon suddenly without cause. Uh, one of my cases I look at is about a man whose child spends about a year and a half languishing, is unnaturally ill, is unable to move. It's really been so sick. And it only becomes recovered, this young son of this older couple, once they accuse the witch, the witch comes in and confesses. And suddenly there's this miraculous recovery that leads them to successfully mm. make this accusation. So it's something they've obviously dwelled upon for a long time. There's several reasons mm. given for uh, accusations to arise. Uh, again, Keith Thomas has provided the classic example in religion, the kind of magic, that of charity refuse. So obviously in uh, early modern society, there are extreme constraints on ability for people to eat, you know, and serious ties of famine, war and suffering, especially with this lice age, people are really suffering. They're relying on their neighbours. I think it's estimated there's one in 10 people in a village is constantly on charity and about something between three to five in a bad year will have to turn to their neighbours. And obviously there are times where their neighbours can't support them, but there's an expectation that you're supposed to support them. So that creates a real tension in people's connection to each other. So you imagine your neighbour leaves, angry at you for not providing what you're supposed to. And they're gonna be, you know, often dealing with older women who are lacking the kind of restraint other people might, they're going maybe through the later stage of the menopause, maybe suffering from dementia, whereby that kind of filter that exists about how you behave with neighbours collapses. And, you know, you think, well, you know, it's fine, it's fine, you know, it happens. But suddenly, this, this person's cursed you, cursed at you, blamed you. Your small child is ill. It's not ill in a natural way. You know, all kinds of diseases, if we think of things like ME, mm. where your energy is sapped, um, we can't, they couldn't explain it. And it doesn't make sense to their worldview. It must be demonic. So therefore, you dwell on it and you dwell on it. And then you make that accusation, but you're doing it at a risk. You know, you're having to bring your reputation to the table and put it against theirs. Again, those cases that are generally successful are going to be older women or older men who lack that kind of support unit of people who will speak for them, who speak to their good habits, to their good nature. So it is, it is tragic, but it's not something that's done on a whim. How easy was it? Let's say I have a hypothetically that I had a wife I don't but let's just say I did and you don't like my wife was it kind of like in Stalinist era where you could accuse a neighbor of uh, you know being against Stalin and he would be arrested and sent to the Jew like just with witches like let's say you thought my hypothetical wife was a witch and you said oh she definitely done some she's in with the devil she's a witch was, was it how easy was it to make an accusation like this Again, legally, you're allowed to, but, you know, you have to take that evidence through. So you have to go, depending on where you are and when you are. So normally it's going to be quite difficult. Witch hunts, as we're going to, I'd like to talk about, uh, things start getting easier, which is the problem, where they start spiralling. But in normal times, no, it's going to be quite difficult. You're putting your reputation against theirs. 
you're having to go and explain this to a magistrate. And again, you'll have a jury and the jury isn't made up of 12 random people who don't know you. It's local people who know who you are, who know your reputation, who know what you're like. If your wife is just, you know, a good upstanding citizen, it's going to be really difficult to convince them she's actually secretly a devil worshipper. Mm. You know, unless something weird has happened, unless you've got people around you, like the local minister goes, well, no, she confessed to me or uh, she spoke to me. It's going to be a complex legal process where she gets every chance to defend herself. Mm. And I'll, I'll, something else I want to talk about is, so some women in that era as well were quite knowledgeable with medical equipment mm. and could, of course, be quite... So they weren't allowed to, and I, I believe that they could be, did know medical procedures and knew how to use herbs to heal people. Was how how and the, but that was kind of of course thrown off when that woman would do this. So if I, if just, let's say I would again to use a hypothesis, say I was sick and this woman came and she healed me with these herbs or that from her medical knowledge knowledge how uh, that was easy, could easily be accused as witchcraft as well, right? Not generally, actually. Um, well, my other colleague Anita, uh, apothecary woman on Twitter, she's fantastic. Women could actually be apothecaries quite easily. Often they don't inherit husbands' businesses and get involved in that. So mm. there's a respectability to it. In fact, the women most involved in English witch hunts are midwives because they are people who know the female body will know anything unnatural about it or use to search alleged witches. So there is women's role in prosecuting. Instead, the danger comes, as we see, I think there's a famous case in Alsace-Lorraine, of a woman who uses magical healing, but it fails. As long as you're succeeding, everybody's happy with it. But she recommended things like using church wax, uh, linking that in with a some dough standing on and then the e woods flow out of you then feeding it to the dogs um again this is all fine as long as she succeeds but the fact she does it doesn't work and people get don't do well it brings people in but again we see evidence particularly in italy and spain where the inquisition is taking a lead in this the inquisition take a pretty dim view of people accusing people of using magical powers they think it's kind of ridiculous. It suggests a usurpation of God's role. Uh, Deborah Moretti, um, again, fantastic uh, organiser of the Witch Fest. She's done some really interesting work about the case of the two angels using vats of carafes uh, of wine to be able to predict the future. And while, again, it's, it's generally um, seen as difficult to do, um, it isn't seen as magical by them. They don't want to think that she's a witchcraft or in, or in league with the devil. Mm. And I, I want to talk about, of course, the ranking in, in the witch hunt, because you do have the famous witch master general, but there are other ranks as well. And what role did the so-called witch master general mm. have, which is like a title you have in the in the KKK or something, but still, it, but it's... I believe it was real, the Witchmaster General. So what was his role and how did he order order these witch hunts and go after witches? So the role of witch finders is fascinating because, again, these are usually self-appointed. Uh, their expertise comes from reading volumes. And again, there's becoming increasing literature about witchcraft as the, 14th, as the 15th, 16th, 17th century goes on. 
So uh, obviously we start with the Malis Malfaciarum. Uh, there's writing in France uh, by legal experts about how to pursue it. Again, there's critical work as well um, by uh, Thomas Scott in England. But we have famously the Daemonology by King James I, based on his own experience of trying to travel to Denmark and being assailed by alleged witches both in Denmark and Berwick upon Tweed. So these volumes start giving people the logic of how to pursue a witch hunt. So the witch finder general in England is fascinating. So Matthew Hopkins, he was assisted by John Stern, who didn't give himself such a uh, special title. But the witch finder general is an assumed title. He's no claim to it whatsoever. But it's going he, on the same. He, he, he didn't become rich, let's say, by being a witch master general, or he, he, but it was a prestigious title, being a witch well, master general. By being the witch finder general, he's appealing to a military rank. This is a time in England when we've when England has fallen into the wider war of the Free Kingdoms. So East Anglia, where he's based, isn't fighting. It's largely relatively peaceful, but it's, uh, it is assailed on each side. There's a risk of attack from the sea, a risk of attack by land. So they're worried about it. The army's taken basically command. A lot of the civil systems of the judges and legal courts run from London have collapsed. Instead, people relying on local courts and local individuals. The uh, Eastern Association, which is the military body that runs East Anglia, has already provided a few officers to do important religious reformation. The most famous is a man called William Dowsing. His job is to go and break up all the Catholic looking images left in the churches in England. He keeps a fantastic diary. He has actually got a military commission. He's been being paid for by the state. So Matthew Hopkins, by claiming he's the witch fighter general, he's claiming the same kind of authority, although he doesn't have it. So this rank is again about showing his authority. He's a self-learned man. Um, he's the son of a minister uh, in um, Essex. And his father-in-law, his, his, sorry, his stepfather is also a minister. But he uh, goes to university, but he ends up running a tavern in um, Essex. Goodness knows, where's that village? Um, three. Goodness. Um, Don't ask me. Don't ask yes, me I know. That. I can't. Uh, I, I, yes, I'm afraid it's been a long day. But he starts off with this village in Essex where he becomes part of the initial accusations. I think his lovely claim is that one of the alleged witches um, is trying to get at him. He's trying to get revenge. So she sends a giant black dog. So this is, again, a very important part of English witchcraft is the belief that witches are granted animals by the devil to harm others and they feed from their body. Uh, so he's based in Manning Tree originally. So he goes out at night, his dog protects him, but he's assailed by the de devil's agent. And this is what stirs him to start uh, acting. What he acts though as is basically like a, a special witness for the prosecution. He brings with him a, a good deal of reading and expertise. And again, if you ever read his uh, self-aggrandizing work, The Discovery of Witches, he claims all sorts of things. Certainly the popular belief is that he he's captured the devil's book of witches, so he knows who they all are. He never claims this, because again, slightly dangerous territory for a Puritan anyway. But instead he engages in various tests. So in Scotland, tests involve pricking, looking for the devil's mark, where this animal feeds from, 
and trying to insert a pin into it. If there's pain and it's not a witch's mark, if there's none, uh, then they are actually a witch. But Hopkins, he has a few more tricks. So the most famous one is that of swimming. So, of course, the popular conception is you throw a woman in the river. If she sinks, she dies, but she's innocent. If she floats, then she's a witch. She's dragged out and, and hung. But the reality was that you basically put a rope across a lake or river. So they hold on to that. So that even if they sink, they're going to be fine. Um, but if they rise up, it's because they rejected their baptism. So that connection to God, that allegiance. So therefore, the water rejects them. They rise up. So again, that's something that King James had recommended as evidence. The biggest thing, though, is something that's not normally allowed. Well, all of this is really normally allowed. English system is a system that you aren't allowed to torture someone before you bring them to trial. So all this evidence he's providing is extra, and it's not normally inadmissible. So it's not normally admissible to court. But the issue is that this whole system's collapsed with the civil wars. There isn't someone to keep an eye on him. So he engages in this process of keeping them awake for three or four days at end. Technically, what he says is he's looking for their familiar to come and feed from them because mm -hmm. he's going to be starving after three or four days. But the thing is, after have you ever been awake for like three or four days straight? Mm, that's, that's far as I know. I don't recommend it. Um, basically, your whole brain wiring it, it comes loose. You start being very, very susceptible to suggestion. You start losing a grip on reality. So therefore, people would confess openly to saying, mm. yes, I'm part of this pact. I'm part of this coven of witches secretly existing as part of your community. Uh, you know, I've got a, a pet dog that feeds from my extra mark on my body, this extra teat, but somewhere unnatural. And of course, once you've got the confession, then you can start convicting them. Because again, that's given a real piece of evidence. So people might retract them after they... Um, wake up, I've had a few days to rest. But that confession is pretty damning. And again, you always wonder with these. I've Again, I found a couple of examples in my own research and they're quite, quite fascinating. You know, how much of this is being influenced by what the people they're talking to? Yeah. It is quite common, and if I may interrupt you, it's quite common yeah. under, under torture, but under pressure you may confess to things. If you've been, been and this is of course again to do a a reference to the Stalinist era when people mm. were tortured left and right. It's quite common after days of torture where that you would confess to things you really clearly are innocent of. Yeah, it, it is interesting. There's a comparison there. And again, I think there is something to Stalinist sense of paranoia, that there's the same kind of paranoia in Europe at the same time. Because witch hunts are pretty rare in a lot of ways. You know, there's only one major one in England. Um, there's a couple of smaller ones at the same kind of time. They're more common in Scotland, where the state's a lot smaller and local people have got a lot more opportunities to bring their accusations to bear. And again, they have more common in Germany, where obviously you've got the Thirty Years' War. You've got big upheavals caused by the Thirty Years' War. But you've also got these smaller prince-bishop states where there's less high authority getting involved. Because the problem is, if you're pursuing witches, it suggests there's something very wrong. You know, witches are dangerous. The evidence that the devil's amongst you, that there's uh, something wrong in society. So it's not something if you're a king or a prince, you really want to recommend because you want to promote that you're running the state well. If you're running the state well, 
the aims of the devil aren't going to be amongst you. But when the state is upheaval, when you're rebuilding it as a godly Puritan, as a godly Catholic, as a godly Protestant from a previous regime, as you're seeing in the civil wars, when England, the places involved in the witch hunts are generally places that are free from royalist control. They're trying to build a new godly Jerusalem based on Parliament's power, that they are seeking this purge of evil from their communities, this sudden panic. Salem is an issue there. They've not got no, they've got no governor. There's threats of the Native Americans attacking, just as there's a threat of war in the rest of Europe. Stable states don't tend to pursue it. You know, if we talk about with Italy and Spain, where generally there's a lot more stability, there's the Inquisition in, at stake. You don't really want to dredge up the idea of the devil's agents amongst you. I know I'm going to derail it because I want to go back to the familiar in a mm. second, but I want to derail to Scandinavia as well. And if you read, read Snorri, I'm not sure you have, but the Sami people, especially in Snorri, and I believe that generally in the medieval era, they are referred to as being shamanistic and using magic as well, and that they are the go-to people if you need something with magic. So the Sami people of Norway and Sweden and Finland, they were also accused of being witches and mm. being in this great magical power. It's quite interesting because there's also something similar in the American colonies. At various points, there's panics about Native American beliefs. They're not just praying to, say, a spirit god. They're praying to the devil. Um, it's not consistent, but it is certainly a fear about this sort of edge of civilization as they see it, or uh, about people in danger of being converted or at risk. So, again, it, it's always this undercurrent of fear and of times of instability that the witch provides. I'm not going to say a scapegoat. I think that's rather harsh, but certainly an outlet for understanding what's going on. So for me, I feel that the witch hunts East Anglia are a response to the failure of in the civil wars of the ability of the godly to pursue mm. that reformation. The war takes too long. It's not quite going the way they want, especially with the arrival of the new model army, which is very um, heterodox to the kind of Puritan beliefs of the people involved in the local communities that are pursuing the witch. And certainly there's evidence of confessional divides that go beyond uh, Protestant Catholic in the communities that engage in the witch hunt. It's the fear of, of the unknown, of people splitting away. What I find fascinating about it in a lot of ways, actually, is about how in some ways it feels very reflective of our modern times in how um, we struggle with this desire of how do we pluralistic and accept people who are different and how do we strive to kind of unity to move together with a purpose to carry out reform or revolution so again with stalin you see the paranoia about kulaks or about wreckers or saboteurs trying to, that's what's holding the revolution back if we just get rid of these people everything's going to be great you know it's this common human thread um which the witch hunt, I think, is one particular vision of. Mm. And you mentioned the familiars, and I want to talk about mm -hmm. the team familiar, because as you know, mostly it's cats, but and we also see in the Sabrina the witch, there's a cat, 
or in other wish series, there is usually in what other in Harry Potter, which I mean, oh, Dimension One example or Fraud just never do. But let's talk about the familiar and how did the idea of a familiar come about and what what kind of formed you? What was the task of a familiar familiar? And uh, to mention what we do in the shadow of the Gilmero is a familiar, but let's talk about approach to the witches for now. But so, what was a familiar and what was the task of a familiar? So, the familiar is part of the pact in English traditions that once you make your agreement with the devil, you might sign his book in blood or uh, agree to pursue him, he would grant you this animal companion that was given the ability to act on your behalf to do harm. So again, there are ways to do harm, but the familiar is the most famous one. So there's mention of them raising storms, of causing animals to die, or attacking people at night. Again, it could shift in size in many ways. So people mention mice. I think one, I remember Blackbird. And again, if you've seen the frontispiece of the Discovery of Witches, it has this wonderful range of them from a greyhound with a bull's head. Um, again, it's something that remains part of East Anglian folklore, the idea of giant dogs, devil dogs that might pursue people in Suffolk and Norfolk. But certainly the ability of it to do so is fascinating. But also it's a surrogate child. You know, they might be passed from people to people, but it's the idea of them feeding from blood, which I've mentioned repeatedly, this idea of the witch's mark from that. And it is like a perverse child. They often mention often weird bignesses in these and uh, the private parts that they feed from that sees this twisted version of childhood again the witch in its most basic form is this idea of inversion the rules of society being turned upside down hmm. so i want to know as well when, when a witch were whether actually people who believe they were witches that oh i'm I'm the hundred percent of which and have magical powers and it don't you dare try and do anything against me or I'll turn it to fraud or whatever whatever to make your life miserable. But were there actually people who believe they had magical powers? There does seem to be some people who are caught alone and they make some quite elaborate fantasies. I think the most disappointing one is like the small amounts of money he gives. And the fact the devil he's basically a well, what do you expect? He's the liar, but he's kind of rubbish. Like he promises them wealth and he gives them a couple of shillings. He promised them sexual satisfaction. But because he's an inverse man, he, he's cold and wet in bed and unsatisfying. There's just, you know, there's a sense of these being very lonely people who's seeking some form of revenge, some kind of connection, and just feeling kind of betrayed by it all. Which, again, might reflect, again, their position in society, that these are people who are, in almost the modern parts, the left behind, the people who are struggling on the fringes and want some kind of comfort, some kind of revenge, that feeling of lostness. And again, the fact that we're dealing with a society, especially with, as it becomes more confessional, the religiosity more intense, it's so easy to fall off that bandwagon and feel that you're not saved, you're the damned. And with that risk of damnation comes a sense of hopelessness and um, lost. You know, there are stories, particularly of Puritans, you know, that because of this idea of election, that you're either saved or you're damned. That leading to psychological disorders that can lead to suicide or severe melancholy and depression. So um, for those poorest who seem lost. 
the seeking comfort in the idea of a devil and that kind of connection. I can see what has an attraction. But again, we have to be so careful about this. Always our stories, our confessions are being mediated by the person they're confessing to. So we have to be slightly careful about what can we take from the, these stories. Mm. And what I want to bring you up as well, you mentioned talk about persecution of witches and you mentioned drowning, but if a witch did sort of witch survive the drownings, of course, then you had the burning of the stake as well. So well, it depends where you are, because again, witchcraft mm. is treated as a different crime in different areas. So often in pl most of Europe, it is treated as a form of heresy for which you could be burned to death. In England, though, it's counted as a kind of treason against God. So it's a hanging crime. There are some, some exceptions to that. There's a rather sad case of Mother Agnes in Ipswich, who's accused of killing her husband. And so that's a form of petty treason on top of treason for which she is burnt. Um, but again, we don't tend to drown them, um, but we tend to test them in the swimming. Um, there is... But also there's a sense of things that people do beforehand to try and break the spell. Uh, in, in East Anglia, there's the witch bottle, where you have a bellamite jar, this thick Dutch jar, which is filled with urine and then metal pins. It's put into the fire, and the belief is the curse will then pass through that bottle into the cursor, the, the witch, and cause them physical pain, the fire that's, in the, that's affecting the bottle. That, But the worst is the belief that if you cut the witch, if you mutilate them, especially their faces, it'll break the hold they hold over you. So this becomes quite It's brutal. Yeah. Uh, I think the worst case of that is seen at, well, this is controversial, but seen at Farndon Field. So just after, in the Civil War, the Battle of Naseby, the royalist camp followers, all the women who've been supporting the army, are caught by Parliament's army, and their faces are mutilated. So mm. something, is this just a war crime? It's about nationality. A lot of those women are either Irish or Welsh. And so there's sort of xenophobia of this new model, very English army. Affects that. But some people also think it is about witchcraft. It's a kind of depossession. That these royalist women who bewitched them, who helped lead to this uh, crime, need to be, their power needs to be broken. There's also a case of an alleged witch spy who's caught on the river, who's riding this plank, trying to investigate what's going on with Parliament. They try and shoot at her. They The bullets bounce off, but they capture her. And once they mutilate her face, she's helpless and she's shot by them. So that, yeah, there's a sense that you could break the power. But again, it requires such a, a physical hatred there. And mm. um, I, I find it interesting that always when they talk about witches in the medieval era, they are always associated with the bad and never with the good. It's always this evil thing that we need to get rid of. It's never this, oh, she could help us out or now she need to be burn a witch or, or take the, the witch down. It's never associated with anything good in medieval society. Well, again, this is interesting. It's about the place of magic and the place of positive magics. So as I mentioned, you know, male magic users who were, could find acceptable outlets. So some of them cross a line. Uh, have you heard of John D? The, no, uh, I don't think so. So he's someone who claimed he could talk to angels, who's doing advanced mathematics that mm. was on the edge of magic 
for Queen Elizabeth I, and he was protected by her. Uh, again, unfortunately, he wasn't necessarily that clever. He had a colleague who basically tricked him into wife swapping based on the claim that angels told him to do so. Uh, and managed a quick escape after that. But also we have Dr. John Lamb, who's allegedly involved in things like poisoning and fortune telling, and basically becomes the pet wizard of the Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers. And in almost a sort of foreshadowing of Buckingham's fall, Dr. John Lamb, he's accused of all kinds of crimes. He's eventually caught in the street by an angry mob who rip him apart as a Malcolm Gaskell my fantastic uh, supervisor has talked about uh, in various different guises. Even the maid of Dr. Lamb is believed to be a user of dark magic because of that taint of his reputation. But there are people who are involved in magic who can get away with that. In particular, astrology is really interesting. It, it kind of glides the line between acceptable and unacceptable at various points. Because again, it's fortune telling by the stars. But again, the same, the sort of name of the stars sounds kind of demonic. You're seeing into the future, seeing into God's work. Can you really do that by yourself or without demonic power? So certainly uh, there's a really interesting individual called William Lilly, who's involved in an almanac conflict during the English Civil War, where he writes almanac saying that Parliament's going to win against a royalist almanac writer who claims the stars show that the royalists will win. Uh, obviously, William Lilly does rather better out of that than the royalist. But he's mostly seen as protected. He writes a book called Christian Astrology. He sees it as a way of understanding God's plan. But at various times he does get, uh, I think he faces one accusation of witchcraft for involving himself in this. And there's an amateur astrologer I look at, the Great Yarmouth. I've talked about him a couple of times. A wonderful um, man called Mark Prin or Prince. We're not quite sure, spelling being what it is at this period, who... Um, basically makes an enemy of a local MP and is pursued at various points for witchcraft. But this is used to criticise this MP. He's seen as gullible. He's seen as foolish for trying to pursue witchcraft accusations against someone who is either helping people try to predict the future, find lost things, using something that's relatively scientific, or for accusing a, basically a con artist of having magical demonic powers. So again, this, this is quite interesting, again, as we move into the 17th century, how magical beliefs become unfashionable amongst the elite. As Owen Davis has said, and again, we'll probably look on, witchcraft beliefs never quite die among ordinary people. But for the elite, they become kind of ridiculous into the later 17th century. Hmm. I, I want to talk about something as well, because I want to bring up, Saint, you mentioned saying to and I want to bring this up as well, because something I just thought about is saints kind of have fall into this category as well, I feel, because some mm. of them do have this sort of healing powers or this, you know, magical powers that you 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 see, seem to be kind of... It's interesting that they seem to be good, good whereas and how they, they speak with angels or how they have this power where whereas witches is trans evil, demonic, mm. and how the saints that have this sort of healing power are kind of good. Well, I think that's really interesting are... about the early modern period is that it's when a lot of medieval magic collapses. So with the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, there's an attempt to remove so-called superstition and magic from the church, which forces it into the fringes. So, um, you know, saints' cults are rejected. 
not just by the Protestants, but also to some extent by the Catholics, that they are ridiculous and that people are looking at false idols. They're praying to saints when they should be praying directly to God. This kind of attempt to uh, make the church more systematic means that magic is exiled to the fringes, which means it becomes the role of less scrupulous individuals or uh, forcing it to being alleged witches. So for, again, a lot of your educated individuals, the age of miracles where God brought magic into the world, where saints and prophets could have influence over the world, is gone. But that doesn't mean that people's belief in magic and fear of the enemy goes. We see all kinds of methods, uh, atropaic protections against magic uh, exist in the world. So where I come from in East Anglia, we see things like people bury cats under the doors to protect them. They make special marks on entranceways like chimneys and doorways to protect themselves. There's a need for that. I mean, this is something that's ancient. I mean, there's the Jewish traditions to protect you from the evil eye that still remain current for a lot of people. And also we see that with newly risen sects, particularly in the Civil War in England and elsewhere, you see a need for magic in popular religion. So people like the Quakers and other nonconformists were believed to have magical powers given to them by God, which leads often to them being accused of witchcraft themselves. But at one point, uh, the devil is known as the great Quaker. And George Fox's miracles, where he swims across the Bristol Channel, the remarkably strong Bristol Channel, the ability of the Quakers to convert people is believed to be ascribed to demonic power. But they see that as a way of healing. For example, things like possessions, uh, you know, people have moments where they uh, might be suffering something like epilepsy or believing themselves to be possessed. The ability of the Quakers and others to remove that for them is evidence the age of miracles isn't quite over. Something we see still in re revivalist religion in America and Africa and in Britain, where magical healing is an important part of that process. But then again, if you believe in magical healing, that does still leave space there for, for magical I mean, people do believe in crystals these days. So, mm. Well, again, there's a whole thing about New Age magic, which is fascinating. An attempt to almost reclaim uh, the demonic magic and see it as part of a tradition of pagan magic that can somehow be traced all the way from the Druids to the modern day. There's no evidence of that. We have, as far as we can tell, by... You know, the 15th century, all of Europe has converted to Christianity. N Christian, non-Christian beliefs that exist are those that have been fully absorbed in and seen as part of the Christian community. They aren't seen as pagan. Even the witches, they are not praying to Hecate or to Circe. They are pulling their power from the devil as part of a Christian worldview. They're not, they're not pagans, they're anti-Christians. Mm. You mentioned modern era, so let's mm. end there. Let's talk about witchcraft. And you mentioned a historian that for does research on modern witch hunts, and especially in the third world, which is surprising that mm. maybe not, but but there is a lot of beliefs today in 2023 in third world uh, and mm. countries, especially in Africa and India to some extent as well that, that believe and I, again I would recommend to read Ronald Holm Cotton's The Witch it's available mm. in audiobook and in paperback as well it's a really good book where it touches especially in the first chapters on this witchcraft in the modern era but it's a lot of especially and like, like I said especially in third world countries and again because 
I kind of blame Christianity on this because it's as Hutton does talk about it is not a pretty Christian belief than against this demonic power. It's kind of a medieval attitude, if you will, and probably a lot has to do with colonial powers and colonial Arabs. But let's, so let's talk about what makes the third, especially third world countries believe still in witchcraft. You have some tra tragic stories about mm. families and how people have been kicked out because of this. So Leo Igwe is a fantastic campaigner on this, particularly in Africa. He feels a lot of it's about education. That again, there's a mix of things. There's Christian elements of good versus evil. There are traditional beliefs far beyond that. So things like the idea of, of things like albino people having magical powers that can use to harm. These have sort of existed for some time. And again, when the two meet, we get a synthesis of beliefs and fears that can lead people to uh, act out and to understand things going wrong in their community. It's the same kind of pattern of belief as we see anywhere, whereby people fall out within villages, people, communities feel at danger from risk. And again, Africa is still a place, well, countries within Africa are still places that are faced by famine, that are faced by war, that are facing religious division in the same way early modern Europe is, and the same way that modern Europe is in a lot of ways. That means that there are still pressures there. There are still fears that are understood in Africa, in these regions of Africa, through the fear of the witch, similar in India. But we still see those tensions here, and we still sadly see cases of individuals who fear their neighbours. Again, there are still cases... <coughs> In newspapers in the 19th century, we still see fears of people about ideas about Halloween, bringing back the demonic for uh, certain Christian communities. So they try and reject that festivity. You know, the eh, the fear of an enemy within still exists. But I think it's quite interesting is those people who now accept it. So again, we mentioned Ronald Hutton. I believe he was brought up in a wicker community, or at least a pagan community. He's someone who's really interesting because he straddles both these worlds and has such sympathy for them. And I think that can be mm. the difficulty sometimes is to have that sympathy across the line. Yeah. And it's really sad when, and, and I, a lot of this, I believe it, it's because of, I don't think, I can't say much about the pre-colonialism, but again, it's, I do think, and I think Hutton brings this up as well, that because of colonialism, and the Christianization of Africa, especially that it's this, and that's one reason why so many countries in this world do believe in still in this stuff. I think there's also the tensions of these states that are sort of slightly artificial, and are struggling with um, religious tensions that have sort of pre-existed, but we've given them more increased intensity. You know, think about certain. Um, and so the nation's facing problems with Islamic uh, Islamist insurgencies, where it's a mix of religion, but it's also about, you know, the Islamists tend to be representing the nomadic peoples who look after cattle, while the settled farmers tend to be Christian. That These old tensions can arise that force people into situations where they are really worried about their livelihood, they're worried about dangers. Mm. going to explain that. And again, as with the early modern era, where a period of climate change led to climatic disasters that fueled fears of God's wrath. We can see how the changing climate now is causing undue famines. It's causing uh, weird weather 
that might well be fueling the fear of God's anger in uh, these countries. Mm. And but let's I mean I'm kind of an interesting topic to end on, but let's end on a little happier note. And that is, which is in modern media, and I'm talking mm. fictional media and fictional world. And it's again, we spoke about this offline, but it's I think, but it's our off the record. But it's interesting how and we mentioned some of these shows that in witches are still being portrayed as being devil worshippers, as you see in, in Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the new series on Netflix, especially, and of course, in what we do, to mention one little funnier one, in what we do in the shadows, they are, are evil as well, but but they want to take the vampires even, but still they are portrayed as these evil beings who still, and it's still fascinating to see that, maybe not in Harry Potter, but still, witches well, that, are, that are is, still. That is fascinating, because there is a divide there. Uh, again, in the 90s, we see attempts to reclaim the witch as a positive feminist figure. So there's Willow from Buffy. There's the 90s Sabrina the Witch show. You know, the idea of a witch is merely a magic user, reflecting mm. some neo-pagan beliefs. Well, wasn't Britain. there a British TV show as well that had this witch school at some yes, point? Yes, uh, the, the, originally the books. Um, yes, The Worst Witch. I love that. Um, because, again, it's basically like Harry Potter, but without most of the danger. Yeah. It's basically a private school experience of the, the student who, who isn't doing very well at academic studies and therefore engaging with that. And they even, they even took her to which university? We didn't get to see very much of that. Um, I always wonder about that with the UEA, that there is, there's been a couple of people who are definitely the UEA wizard, my old uh, alma mater, uh, if there's a proper magic department there. But uh, sadly, that's Exeter, mm. which has now revealed its new core studying magic. So there is a place now for magic in popular culture. But again, we've actually managed to have some really good horror films that capture the feel of the Stuart period. Um, you know, everyone raves about the witch, which does take that frontier lifestyle, includes an actual demonic figure, creating danger and tension for people and uses that to explain those kind of tensions, which has done very, very well. And uh, we recently had the Witchfinder comedy on uh, BBC which, uh, again, I have to recommend because Malcolm Gaskill, my old supervisor, was the expert advising them. But no, I enjoyed it. It was, it was quite funny, caught a lot of the feel of the period. Um, but yeah, so that shift both um, from the you know 1960s where you had the Matthew Hopkins, who was the sadist, played by Vincent Price. So a slightly more understanding version of him as this sort of expert driven, maybe somewhat cynical, but still um, not necessarily evil for evil's sake, which I think is quite an interesting switch. But at the same time, we need to give place for, you know, the idea of magic and its place within society. And that's certainly something that I think people become a good deal more sympathetic for, or less willing to, to pursue as, uh, thankfully, witch hunts today. Mm. And again, I do want to bring it up as well, when we speak about media in the first place, there's still people trolling, and, and to refer to the Russell Brand case, they, oh, they're calling it a witch hunt. Mm. I'm not going to comment any, anything on the case itself, but you know, most a lot of people calling it a witch hunt, and in general, if people are being you know, accused of something, oh, it's another witch hunt, if politicians are, you know, it's, oh, it's, they're witch, it's, 
It's a witch hunt. It's still a term being used today in media and popular in popular culture. Certainly, that's something that I think um, we can thank to the 1950s and the McCarthy Red Scare, and then obviously Arthur Miller's play The Crucible, which used that as a as a metaphor for that Red Scare. Um, that certain sense of panic and a desire to do things, and you can certainly make comparisons that there is still part of human nature that can panic and overreact, underreact at times to things. And again, we've seen massive scares, probably rightly, on things like Me Too and with the way children are treated um, by upper members of society, attempts to root out child abuse. But the way they've often been handled by the media reflects that sense that we're so worried about that enemy within, that the people amongst us who should be our guardians who should be our friends, who should be looking after the most vulnerable in society, are going to harm them and hurt them. We can't escape that, sadly. And sometimes that's going to bubble out in terms of our fears and conspiracies about some great plot against us. Mm. Again, and, it's, and it's finally, quite sobering, isn't it? Mm. Finally, of course, I'd, I'd got to ask, do you have a favourite fictional witch that you have? Fictional witch. Well, I'm tempted to go with Mildred Hubble, the eponymous worst witch. Um, but I think I might go for Granny Weatherwax from the mm -hmm. Discworld series as as a positive role model of the old woman who's able to use magic for good, just about. I don't say mine is Jennifer Renner of Vennerberg from the Witches <laughs> for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't end it on that note. Of course, before you go, you are on Twitter and you, and you have other social media where you people might find you if they do have further questions with about witches and that we did not get to discuss today. Or do you have anything else you want to promote or share with us? Links in the in the description whatsoever. Of course. Um. Well, you can find me on Twitter slash X at Danny Buck UEA. Um. I've got a talk coming up at the. Toll House in Great Yarmouth, where the witch hunts occurred mm. on Wednesday, the 25th of October. So probably short notice, but if you can get all the way to Great Yarmouth, it should be a great night. We've got um, a reenactor playing John Stern, the wonderful Nigel Amys, and a musical based on the career of the Witchfinder. Oh. One of two in the region. They've been fantastic, the amount of people engaging with that, as well as the new Scottish play Prick. And then on Tuesday, the 7th of November, I'm giving a talk both online and in person at the Heritage Library in Norwich, Familiar and Stranger Things, The Making of a Witch. So that should be great mm. fun. It must be really cool, by the way, to be in Norwich for so much witch hunt and so much accessible mm. uh, archive is available. It's fantastic. I just, I'm, I'm spoiled for choice at times. Uh, again, I love the sort of rich records we get where they discuss the career and, you know, inviting a witch finder while they're doing it. It, it's a real luxury but also you know i study great yarmouth it's only an hour down the road and it's so fantastically evocative of this seaside town the the jail is still there and fantastically mm. the the accuser and the mp and regicide miles corbett sits there in creepy wax doll fashion watching down on you and hopefully you'll be right next to me as i give my talk so i'm looking forward to that Mm. And of course, I can't believe we have made a visit of us reference, but there you go. 
we made it. Just made, we made it. it. <laughs> thank you for uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you on this first Halloween special. I hope you enjoyed it too. We are available on social media on the Twitter or X, whatever it is called these days, and under that age twelve with one L because Twitter wouldn't allow us to for some reasons. And we are on Instagram under that age twelve, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. Wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are an Apple podcast, I would highly recommend writing a review and I will try to read it on this podcast at some point if I see you have written a review. And on your Spotify, give us five stars. That would help us out a lot. And please like, share, and subscribe if you are on YouTube. Make sure to click on that follow button. And like, share. My name is Alan. Please check out some other episodes we have. I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.